Are you ready to scale? Why not invest three minutes in our scalability index? It's quick, it's easy, and it's got specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. Hello, and welcome back to Genius at Scale. Today's guest is Chris Wentz. Chris, tell us about yourself and your company. Hey, John. Thanks so much for having me on the program. So I'm Chris. I am the founder of EveryKey. Uh, I've been an entrepreneur ever since middle school. Uh, I got into entrepreneurship through video games, started a few video game-related websites, which taught me how to code and run a business. And uh, when I was in college, I presented this I, this big, big idea to our college professor in this entrepreneurship class. And uh, I told the class that I have all these different keys, right? And I'm sure you have a lot of keys as well. Uh, you listen uh, on the other side of this camera. Um, and I have a lot of different passwords as well. And I'm sure you do as well. I've had to actually write all my passwords on this piece of paper in order to remember them all because there's so many different passwords that I use throughout the day, um, different passwords for every website and app that I have an account for. And at every key, we are on a mission to get rid of this broken and outdated access control technology and replace it with something better, introducing the revolution of access control, introducing every key. It's the world's first universal smart key that replaces your passwords and keys with this easy to use, uh, simple little device. Every key can unlock your phone, your laptop, your tablet, the door to your house, your car door, your bike lock, anything else that would require a key or password to unlock. Every key unlocks for you and logs you into all your website accounts and app accounts that you use throughout the day when you're around and then locks everything back down and logs everything back out when you walk away. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, does it does it mow the lawn twice a month? On, uh, it doesn't do it doesn't do that. Maybe uh, in a future yet. software update. You know, not know. yet. Okay, that's, that's great. Your your list uh, reminds me of of the call I I used to get from my parents. They'd say I I can't I can't figure out the television passcode. I, I where they'd write it down once on a yellow sticky, and then they lose the yellow sticky and, and go, jeez, oh, mom, mom, come on, come on. <laughs> Absolutely, it, yeah. My parents, yeah. That's a that's a little Fred Flintstone ish. But this is yeah. this is kind of a universal issue with people. So are these encrypted? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So um, we're using the Bluetooth uh, protocol, which Bluetooth typically doesn't have very good encryption behind it. So we had to add our own encryption on top of that. Um, but we're not using anything uh, too custom. We're using military grade AES and RSA encryption. Um, and so there's actually four layers of uh, that encryption uh, sitting both on the every key and the devices that it pairs with, like your phone and your laptop and uh, all your different uh, different devices. So. Obviously, this is a this is a uh, podcast about scaling. Is this a subscription? Mm -hmm. Can you scale like a? Is this like a SaaS sort of play, or is this or this uh, you have to sell one at a time? Uh, we started off selling one at a time and quickly found out that that was really difficult. Right, um, tough way so, to go. Yes, we yeah, we, ter we took the advice of many of our investors, advisors, mentors, and uh, introduced a subscription model. So we actually reduced the upfront price that you pay for in every key. Originally, people were paying anywhere from $128 up to $165 for the product. Now we charge $49 for the product, and you pay a $5 month subscription fee if you're a consumer. And we're actually in a bit of a transitionary phase right now. We're, we're, we're doing great with the consumer side of things, but we're also now starting to 
pursue uh, enterprise and government customers. We were recently selected for a $1.25 million contract with the U.S. Air Force, um, and we're uh, starting to get more into that uh, government and enterprise uh, side of the business and, and selling to those customers now. So, so what percent? I'm curious, what percentage of your um, subscription base is individuals, where somebody just says, "Wow, I need this product. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen." To the Air Force. You know what we find is it's really interesting. A lot of people are buying every key for individual use, um, but then they end up using it in a corporate environment, right? Most people are signing up uh, using their corporate emails. They're uh, using every key in a corporate environment. We start to see that once one person in a company is using it, it starts to kind of land and expand. It starts to expand to other people within the organization because they now need to share the passwords that they've created with every key with their fellow coworkers. So what a better way to do that than to get them set up with with every keys as well. Um, so at this point, it is the majority of people, like 60% plus, are using every key in a corporate environment. Um, but quite frankly, a lot of people, uh, my, myself included, are using it in a mixed environment. You're using it both for your corporate passwords and for your personal passwords, because it really kind of serves both purposes. Most people have uh, passwords both for their business and for their personal use. No, that's great. That's great. So with, a, with an upfront if you will, product sale, and then a subscription on the back, how are you, how are you measuring or how are you defining scale? Are you doing it by ARR or what, what are you doing it by? Yeah, yeah, we do it by ARR, by products sold, by licensing revenue as well. So we actually have a really interesting patent on this technology, um, which we've been able to license to some of the biggest players in the industry, like LG Electronics, the Air Force themselves, Global ID, and a few others um, are starting to license our technology. So we kind of bucket our revenue into those different buckets and then monitor over time how those are able to grow. And uh, when it comes to kind of the direct, you spend a dollar, you make a dollar type of uh, transactions like Facebook ads and Google ads, it's really just about monitoring that profitability, what your return on ad spend is and uh, scaling appropriately based off of that. That's, that's great. And you've been in business how long? When did you found the company? We were founded in 2015, so we have been uh, at this for a bit at this point. Um, if you're watching this podcast uh, in a later year, we're currently in 2023, and uh, we did... Uh, spend the first few years um, developing out the product, right? So this product's actually only been on the market and shipping for a couple of years at this point. Um, when we first started the company, we knew we had to make this work with Mac OS and Windows and iOS and Android and all your major web browsers. So as you can imagine, the development challenge was pretty uh, monumental and we were able to overcome that uh, in the early years and get a fully functioning product out to the market. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. We're still constantly making improvements, adding new features to every key. Uh, so we're going to constantly be uh, in this uh, constant improvement mode, just like any company. I mean, Apple's always adding new features to their products as well. But it, life's better with revenue, huh? <laughs> Life is much better with revenue. Absolutely. But it also gives investors a new metric to judge you off of, right? When you're a pre-revenue company, ooh, it's all smooth sailing. And those uh, up and to the right uh, graphs of revenue are always, uh, oh, they're super realistic because we haven't generated any revenue yet. Of course, that's how it's going to go. But once you have revenue now, uh, they have something to compare you to. Um, but it's it's also, it gets you higher valuations. It makes it seem more real. You obviously sure. have money coming in the door besides the investments. So that's all very positive. 
So talk talk me through um, the period from inception at 2015 to the point where, um, as as a, a fellow entrepreneur of mine said, uh, the pain stopped, and what they called it was their 1500 days of pain because at 1500 days the pain finally stopped because they were they hit they hit metrics that they said thank God we can we can eat something other than ramen and rice and noodles. <laughs> Walk me through. How, first of all, how many days of pain did you have? And I don't. I don't mean to say that it was all painful, but um, how, <laughs> walk me through that journey from inception to hey, hey, there's a light here, and we're, we're it's not an oncoming train. We're we're looking we're looking better here. Yeah. So I guess for us, it's it's kind of interesting because as a tech startup that's funded largely by venture capital, we still haven't hit profitability yet. You know, if we pulled the right levers, we could be a profitable company right now, but we're prioritizing scale and getting into these enterprise accounts uh, above profitability right now. So I can't say that the pain has completely gone away, if I'm being honest. I, there but might it, still be a few it's more. It's lowered. Yeah, you're, you're, you're now it's on ibuprofen. It's absolutely. Yeah, two, yes, two yes. ibuprofen it's instead not, of, yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't opioid. feel like the entire company's <laughs> future is reliant on me getting this email sent out today. I don't feel that kind of pressure anymore the same way that I did in day one, day two, day three, day 50. Um, but, uh, but I still feel a lot of pressure, obviously, and I still want to perform and I still, uh, am doing everything I can to, you know, get, get the company, uh, to that point of profitability and, uh, getting to a higher point of scale as well. So how, um, about how long, uh, so it's, it's, you're still in the, uh, relatively speaking, the pain is is diminishing, but you're still in the you're still building that. Yeah, but I, I would say the pain started to reduce as soon as we started to. Well, I was going to say the pain started to reduce once we raised venture capital, but I get now I'm realizing once you raise venture capital, you also now have people that you're reporting to, and you have a lot of responsibility to those people. So in some yeah. ways, there's new pains, but the pain of eating ramen noodles, not having enough funding, uh, starts to reduce at least temporarily as you have that money, uh, in the bank, you know, startups go through startups are like a roller coaster in many senses, right? Both from a financial standpoint, cause you have these highs where you have more money than you know what to do with. And then you have these lows where, you know, you're not sure if you're going to make payroll next week. And I'm not going to lie. We've been through a few of those ourselves. Um, and, uh, not quite as many of them recently, which is good. So yeah, I, I, I guess, uh, Early on, I think we raised venture capital within about a year, year and a half after our company's founding. That's when things started to feel more real. I wouldn't say that the pain went away completely. It just changed forms a little bit. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess as of recently, I've brought on some new people onto the team that have helped me feel uh, to help uh, reduce that pain as well. I, I've, we've gotten to the point where there are really experienced people, more experienced than myself, um, you know, focusing on, uh, scaling this company. And that has given me a lot of confidence in the business and it's, uh, it's taken away some of that personal pressure, I would say. Sure. So the talent you brought on is specifically focused on scaling or it's, it's more focused on, Oh well, they're a badass CEO or they're a badass CFO, uh, um, regardless of whether they have a history of scaling. Or did you did you look for talent connected to having successfully scaled in the past? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, specifically people who have scaled in the past um, in the enterprise sense, right? So uh, full disclosure, uh, I founded the company and as of up, uh, up till about a month ago, I was also the CEO of the company, but we brought in a new CEO. I'm, it says president on my business cards right now. We'll see exactly where my, uh, what, what my title is moving forward, probably CTO or something to that degree. I'm still the chairman of the board. Um, but anyway, um, we brought in a new CEO who really has the expertise and the passion for the enterprise customer, because I'm not going to lie. Um, when I started the company, I loved the consumer market. Uh, I get so much excitement out of the consumer market. Consumers are who I love selling to. I don't have quite that same level of excitement or expertise uh, when selling to enterprise customers. So we knew that we had to bring in somebody who does have uh, all those attributes within enterprise. So we brought in uh, this new CEO. Um, his name's Alex Lang. He's amazing. I mean, he has had multiple, uh, he's had three uh, prior acquisitions um, in his past. He's been able to scale companies from basically zero up to tens of millions of dollars of ARR. Um, so he has uh, done a fantastic job for previous companies and he's very new to our business, but he's already doing some game changing stuff for us. So um, I'd say that in our journey to scale and to continue to scale, uh, bringing on team members who have done it before has been an instrumental piece in that. No, it's great. It's great. So what's been, what's been more difficult um, building if you will, scalable systems and processes for everybody in the organization or finding talent? Finding talent has not been too much of a challenge for us, I would say. It's kind of interesting because I think a lot of people resonate with what we do, whether you're an enterprise or a consumer. Problems of passwords are just so widespread. Right? Right. Intuitively, everybody gets it. Yep. Yeah, everybody gets it. It's it's a product where, you know, a, a lot of a lot of companies, unfortunately, you know, you, you hear what they do and then you're immediately like, wait, what? But with every key, we're very fortunate that what we do can be easily explained to a child, to um, anybody, really. And they, they can understand it fairly quickly. Um, so that has helped us, I think, a lot. I think that that has really made our hiring uh, process a lot easier. Um, and some of the branding that we've created around the product and just the website. And, you know, we, we, like we appear from the external, at least to be a cool company. I hope we really are. Um, we've, we've really strived to be that way anyway. And I think that that helps us attract, uh, employees, um, and really talented people. Um, but yeah, as far as like creating processes in, in internally to, uh, to incentivize scale, to get people to work hard and get the job done and everything. I'm on this lifelong uh, journey of learning how to become a better leader, right? Um, and so I would say that that's the more challenging aspect is figuring out how to be the best leader, how to motivate people um, and, you know, having a good product and being really energetic helps a lot. Uh, but there's a lot more aspects to being a good leader and motivating people to scale uh, than just a few attributes like that. Yeah, that's great. And, and as you know, there's not one one playbook for being a leader. It's, it's yeah. yeah, you trying to be a version of a leader like Elon Musk, you say, well, but you're it won't quite fit because he's he does or yeah, I see people try to copy that and it tends not to work. Um, your right. version of the best leader is going to be your own. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So what's the um, you said it's 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 not, you know, it's a roller coaster. What's the um, yeah. what's the biggest lesson you've you've learned like hard lesson? And what was the tuition you had to pay for that? 
The biggest lesson. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, let's see. How do I phrase this? Hold people accountable and make sure that people are getting their job done while doing it in a nice way, right? I think early on, I was very much a gritty, like, if you don't get your job done, I'm going to be pissed type of leader, right? A very Steve Jobs-esque, um, like, how could you not get this done? Like, what an idiot you are for not uh, being able to solve this problem. I had that kind of attitude early on and it didn't work at all. I mean, I lost some of my best people because I wasn't treating people uh, the way that they should be treated, quite frankly. And that was a hard learning lesson. It's hard to do that soul searching and to realize that about yourself. And I fortunately did realize it about myself and learn from it and began to change my leadership style to one where, um, you know, we're still getting stuff done and people are still hitting their milestones, but we can still be nice about it. And I'm learning a lot from this new CEO, Alex, um, about this leadership style as well, because he very much has uh, that new leadership style that I aspire to uh, become. He's good at holding people accountable without being uh, too aggressive or mean about it. So you're not lowering your standards. You're just changing your approach. Exactly. That's, oh, that's a perfect that's way to, uh, to summarize it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great because you're right. You're, you're not going to go anywhere, especially with venture capital and the, the pressure of stakeholders or the ex expectations. I won't call it pressure, but the expectations of stakeholders and investors. But you're not going to get anywhere by lowering your standards. Uh, but yeah, you're exactly. Yeah, your approach is optional. You can do that any, anyway. Eh, good for you. Good, good for you. So at this point now, what do you optimize for? What are we optimized for? I mean, what, like are, what, you, I, I what, guess, are, what are your focus? How are you optimizing? Are you are you saying what, we're going to focus and optimize on these metrics or this process or um, we're doubling down on product development? We're not worried about that. What do you optimize for now? When you say the word optimize, I ask the question, what are we not optimized for? Because we try to optimize everything. We try to automate and optimize everything in our business, probably more than we should. There are, I think there's a good learning that a lot of mentors have told me, which is um, in startups, sometimes you have to do things that don't scale, right? In order to get to the next uh, point. And I think that oftentimes we try to build everything to be fully scalable to the moon and beyond. And that can be to our detriment sometimes. Um, as far as what we're kind of focused on, if that's uh, kind of the question, um, it is largely, it's, it's kind of two things right now. It's product development, right? We are building out the enterprise product. We have a V1 uh, released and people are using it, um, but we really need to expand upon it. There's a lot of different features that these enterprises are looking for that we don't yet offer. So that's uh, number one priority. Number two priority would be, uh, of course, uh, getting more enterprise customers on board, building these relationships with these customers and, uh, you know, going back to priority number one, building product that they want and that they love. Yeah. So you're, you're really, a f your competitive advantage is you've got a, you've got an unbelievably, I'll call it novel product. Thank you. Yeah. No, yeah. it's great. Yeah. I think that helps. I, I think, yeah, I think that having a different product uh, is, is good, but it's also, um, it's also challenging because when you're inventing kind of a new space of product, 
um, people aren't Google searching this. They're not necessarily Google searching, hey, I want to buy a smart key, right? They don't even know that such a thing exists. Right. So we need, there's a huge customer education piece to this that's very challenging, very expensive. Um, and, you know, going back to kind of the optimizing piece of this, when we're running, you know, Google ads, Facebook ads and such, we have to be very mindful of the fact that most of the people seeing these ads and uh, that, that will end up buying our product to help us with the scale. Um, oftentimes, they didn't even know that this kind of thing existed. They, they knew that they had the problem. Um, most people realize that they have this problem, but they don't really know much about the solutions. They might know about password managers. They might know about LastPass. Yeah, password pass, managers you password. hear about. Yeah, because everybody knows about those, but you don't really know that there's kind of these alternative solutions that can be as good, if not better, in many ways than a password manager. I mean, with every key, you don't need a master password. Your devices and accounts lock back down when you walk away. So there's a huge amount of advantages. And of course, we unlock the devices themselves. So you kind of have everything you get with a password manager and more. And I think a lot of people just don't realize that because they, they haven't even heard of a product like this before. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm curious, uh, in my, my own practice, I, I coach a lot of CEOs and, and product companies with a physical product, uh, more and more of them are requiring people to come to the office because you, you need to get around the product and, and work in teams. And it's easier to do if you're, you're face to face. And then yeah. uh, tech, tech companies, um, especially software companies, find it easier to work distributed or remote. How have you, mm-hmm. how have you walked that tightrope? Because everybody said you, you were right in the middle. You were you're five years old yeah. when the p- pandemic hit. You must have been right at an inflection point, and then pandemic hits. How, how have you in 2023? How have you now um, figured out that equation? Yeah. So, I mean, every key, even though we offer the hardware product, we are a software company at our core, right? Everything, this hardware product, not that novel. We have a Bluetooth device or a Bluetooth module strapped to some LEDs and a button, but, and a battery, of course. Um, but this is really just a piece of plastic with some simple electronics inside it where the real magic happens within every key is in those software, uh, tools that we've developed for Mac OS, Windows, iOS, Android, all the major browsers. Um, so all of those apps and browser extensions where the real secret sauce lies. And uh, we took too long to figure out that we needed to be a remote company. We finally made the move back in January, or I guess, December of last year, December of 2022, we made the move to fully remote. Uh, we uh, terminated our office lease. We were working fully in person uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, but it was hard to retain top talent uh, by doing that. You know, we had employees who were like, hey, Chris, you know, I could work, um, you know, for you and have to come into an office every single day, or I could go get this other job uh, working for a Silicon Valley company that will pay me two or three times more because they're not a startup company and they're not paying, you know, quite frankly, Cleveland wages and everything um, where the cost of living is a lot lower and you can obviously live off of uh, a lot less. Um, so they were taking those opportunities and we were losing some of our best employees. And uh, at that point, we realized, hey, let's go fully global. Let's get rid of the office. It's another expense that we can now you know, uh, get rid of and embrace this fully remote lifestyle. And I've embraced it uh, as much as anybody in my company. I actually moved to Mexico um, in January to be with my fiance and her kids. And so I'm living a totally different life than I was living earlier. Um, but I find it to be better for my 
mental health, for my productivity. Um, everything is just so much better. Obviously, it's I'm saving. My wallet loves it. I'm saving a huge amount of money by being here in Mexico instead of in the U.S. Um, even Cleveland. Cleveland's a pretty cheap city or inexpensive city, but uh, it's still nowhere close to Mexico. Anyway, so uh, yeah, and 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 it's it's been great. It's been um, I would say that we're working more efficiently. Our teamwork and our uh, communication has been even more effective now that we're out of office than we were in office, which is very strange. I would have expected it to be the opposite, um, but we've just found good processes to keep everybody uh, on the same team and to keep everybody communicative and uh, you know checking in with employees every once in a while, just asking them like, hey, how are you doing? You know, how's the family and everything? You know, just keeping that personal aspect, even if it is kind of over Zoom calls and such like this, um, has been really effective for us. It's helped us uh, continue to create that relationship. No, it's great. Uh, I, uh, good for you for figuring that piece out. And I, 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 I wondered about the, the idea of people relocating to Cleveland to work at an office. I, I'm yeah. from Detroit, so it's, it's, I, I understand the, the equation. People say, I live in Miami. Yeah. I live in, yeah, I live in Austin. Why would I move to Cleveland? It's a tough, <laughs> right. it's a tough right. sell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a yeah. Tough sell. And I, I, I get it. You know, I, I understand where they're coming from. Um, I think we should, yeah, it, it really never, I wanted to do this from the very beginning of our company. It's kind of ironic because I was the first one to resist us getting an office for a while. We just worked out of my apartment um, and people worked remotely a lot of the time too. We would do like one or two days per, or maybe three or four days per week out of my apartment. And the rest of the days um, we just work from home. And I was like, no, we don't need an office. Why, why, why would we need an office? But like every company had an office at that point. So we, we got an office and uh, looking back on it, think about all the money we could have saved and all of the opportunities we may have missed out on by hiring mostly employees in the Cleveland area instead of hiring globally. Um, it just doesn't make sense. And I, I wish I could, if, I, if there's one thing that I could kind of rewind and redo, it's we should have been a remote company from day one and, and stuck to it. And the pandemic is just proving that to be I, a good, good. Route. I'm curious if you can speculate, um, it, it, not the money piece, but the time piece, how much time did it if you will, cost you to have only local talent in Cleveland versus being able to say, oh, we can do Google Global. Crap, we could get, yeah. get people from yeah. Eastern Europe. We could get people from Mexico. We could get people from where? Yeah. What, how, much, how much did that maybe slow the growth because your talent pool was so small? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it slowed. So first of all, I don't want to dog on Cleveland too much. And there, and there are there are really great engineers in Cleveland. You know, I came out of Case Western Reserve University and I got a computer science degree there myself. So I know it's a top notch uh, computer science program. There are really good uh, software engineers coming out of Case. So um, we were still hiring top end talent, and we I would make trips to you know Silicon Valley and stay with my friend uh, in San Francisco while I'm raising money out there because Silicon Valley is where you raise money for a tech company, and I would hear you know his engineers from Stanford interact with each other and it's not really a different quality than case western so I, I would say no. that we have some really talented people in Cleveland and we were very fortunate to be able to hire a lot of those people and they did it some amazing amazing things for every key um, but yes I do think that 
obviously when you limit your pool, you're going to, um, it's going to take longer to do a hiring process. You're going to have less candidates to choose from. Um, and you talk about time saving. Um, I am the kind of person who's very obsessed with our company's image, our brand, and that extended to the office. I spent way more time than I should as a CEO designing out the office, figuring out what kind of desks and chairs we should have. All this BS that honestly doesn't matter to your success at the end of the day. I spent way too much freaking time on it. And I'm so glad that I don't have to spend that time on that anymore. It has freed up my time for the more important things, the things that actually matter to scaling the business. Yeah. It's funny because we've, we've seen the reverse in Silicon. I'm, I'm, I'm right in the heart of Silicon Valley. We've seen the reverse. People are saying, oh, I don't have to live in Silicon Valley with the cost. I can still work for a high tech company, whether it's out of Mexico or Cleveland or Silicon Valley, and I can live in fill in the blank. I can live in Boise yeah. or I can live in I can live in uh, Colorado or I can live in wherever they want to. Um, yeah, for a tech company, yeah. you're, you're right. But it's 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 interesting that it took a pandemic for people to figure that piece out. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were fundraising in Silicon Valley you know, just like a year before the pandemic, you know, uh, 2019, we were raising around in Silicon Valley and the number of investors that passed on every key just because we're in Cleveland, Ohio, Cleveland. based in Cleveland, yeah. Ohio was astronomical. Yeah. It was like probably the majority. As soon as I started yeah. a conversation, if they found out that we were based in Cleveland, that would turn them off, which I never yeah. understood. It's like, why, you know, you can find good people anywhere. And I'm so glad, you know, obviously the pandemic is, is a terrible thing and had plenty of downsides to it, but the positive side that it had where it opened investors minds to the idea of investing outside of Silicon Valley is a very positive uh, effect. Well, it's, fun it's funny because it, yeah, it allowed you to make that shift too and say, well, <laughs> everybody's remote now. Okay, good. Oh, Gosh, I could live anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's great. That's great. So um, we have fun with, um, you, you had said in your, in your um, right at the beginning of your intro that you, you started as an entrepreneur, you had like an entrepreneurial mindset, even as a kid. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if, we had, if we had gone to your junior high or like seventh, eighth, ninth grade, you know, everybody's got braces and pimples and they're awkward and the whole <laughs> deal. That's, but that's why yeah. you say, okay, good. So nobody has an advantage in, in grade school. But had we gone there and said, we want to do a futures bet on Chris, how much money would we have bet or would we have bet on you as an entrepreneur had we gone to your seventh grade or eighth grade and said, let's just follow this guy around for 30 days and then say, he'll, you know what, he'll be a tech uh, entrepreneur with a successful company. Walk us through, through that. Were the, were the signs there and they were just kind of hidden behind a seventh grade version? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that most of that awkwardness probably hasn't gone away too much. <laughs> I'm probably twice <laughs> that age. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, still, it's still a bit of a, uh, you know, a socially awkward individual here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I would like to say that, yes, I was showing some of those signs from an early age. I mean, starting websites and doing like, you know, tournament websites and advertising networks when I was in middle school is not what your typical middle schooler is doing. No. But at the same time, I was sacrificing a lot too. I wasn't like socializing as much as I probably should have, um, you know, didn't have much of a friend group at that point. Um, didn't, uh, didn't spend quite as, I mean, I got decent grades when my parents forced me to and everything in grade school. But then as soon as I went to college, I'm just like, 
who the hell cares about my grades? I want to spend more time on this entrepreneurship thing and starting companies and making money. That seemed a lot more important to me at the time. And, you know, I, at this point, I guess, you know, in hindsight, I probably should have had a little bit more balance. I probably should have spent a little bit more time on school and everything. But, hey, I still got my degree. Nobody's going to look at my college report card it's, um, it's, at this point, especially. So it's it's one of the things a lot of entrepreneurs tell me. They say no, no uh, funding source has ever said what was your GPA in at university. None of them. Exactly. They, they either yeah. say we will like this investment or we don't. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. They might care fun. about what school you went to, you know, get, get into a good school for sure. Take, take uh, elementary school, middle school, high school seriously, because that's going to help you get into a good school, which investors. The only, the only reason for it is to get into a decent. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's no secret that if you are found, if you were, if you went to Stanford and your company is founded out of Stanford, you have a significantly higher chance of getting venture capital than a, a company that's founded out of, you know, a school like mine, Case Western Reserve is not a B tier school by any means. It's a great school. It's a fantastic school and it's constantly climbing in the ranks with, which helps uh, entrepreneurs that, that started companies coming out of it. But it's not, it's not Stanford, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it will be at some point. Um, but yeah, you, you got, you got to work hard in those early days on the schoolwork to, to get into this good school. Yeah. So what's the one question I should have asked you that I didn't? Hmm. Um, well, I guess, let's see. I, a lot of people ask kind of like about what our biggest challenge has been as a business. Um, and I guess my answer to that, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, our product today, you know, it, it lives up to its name, every key, right? It is your key for everything. And in order to do that, we had to overcome some pretty big challenges of Bluetooth. Um, Bluetooth is one-to-one. -one. You take one uh, Bluetooth headset and pair it with one Bluetooth cell phone, for example, right? Um, and that's how it's worked for 20 plus years since Bluetooth has yep. existed. And uh, it's also not very secure and it's not very fast either. It can take five to 10 seconds. You, you know, you open your AirPods case and it takes a few seconds for them to connect with your, uh, your computer or your phone. But we had to overcome those uh, challenges in the early days. And I actually lost employees because of this. I actually had um, my best friend um, quit the company um, because he didn't think that this was going to be possible. He's like, Chris, you're never going to be able to live up to this name. Every key, every key is only going to be able to connect to one device. That's how Bluetooth works. And so we had to kind of put our heads together and find a solution to this. And fortunately, the solution that we found was innovative. It was different. It was uh, something that we were able to receive a issued U.S. utility patent on, which we have now been able to license and generate hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of licensing revenue from. Um, and we're still just at the tip of the iceberg with this, really. Um, and yeah, so it, it's really interesting. I guess the learning lesson there is even when you feel like all the chips are down and you're not sure if you're going to make payroll next week and you're not sure if this company is going to exist a month from now, those are the challenging times that test you as an entrepreneur. And those can sometimes uh, result in the most rewarding outcomes out there. It can be great for team building and when you come out of those stronger, you look back and you laugh at those times and you think, ha, you know, we were able to overcome those challenges and that's why we're here today and that's why we're successful and that's why we're scaling. Yeah, that's great. That's great. We'll leave it at that note. Uh, Chris, thanks for your wisdom, your insight. Um, it's uh, The entrepreneurial journey is always fun and it's different yeah. for everyone. I mean, there's a lot of things. That are, the roller coaster is probably the same for everybody to a certain extent, but your roller coaster mm -hmm. was... Uh, very enlightening, uh, very helpful for our audience. Thank you for, Thank you. for joining us today on, uh, on Genius at Scale.
Thank you for having me, John. I really appreciate it. All the best. Thanks for joining us today. Are you ready to scale? If so, invest three minutes in our scalability index. It's simple, easy, and gives specific guidance. Find it at evokinggenius.com slash scale. All the best.